From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name's Wendy Burden, and I've written a book called Dead End Gene Pool, which is a memoir about growing up in my um, overfunded and overserved family. I'm going to be reading from the first chapter, which is called 31 Moons. Your attention, please. Whoops. The head stewardess, a beehived blonde, dropped her microphone. While she grappled for it on the floor of the DC-4's galley, the resultant screech and the disclosure of her pneumatic bust ensured all eyes were directed her way. Ladies and gentlemen, she began again, we have a little problem. In a short while, the captain will ask all of you to um, <clears throat> assume the crash position as illustrated in the safety information located in the seat pocket in front of you. Excuse me. Uh, please, your attention again, please. The words crash position had thrown a switch. People began twisting in their seats, trying to figure out why such a measure was deemed necessary when the plane had not changed altitude for the last half hour and was, in fact, chugging nicely along. Huh? became, what's happening? Which then turned to, just what the hell is going on? Finally, the stewardess lost it and yelled, quiet, which was the cue for the captain to assume control from the flight deck. Now, ladies and gents, he began, there's nothing for y'all to get worked up about. This is a standard safety procedure we instigate whenever there is a little old biddiest chance of an incident occurring. His voice was creamy, with just the right amount of manly authority. But no one was buying that Sky Commander crap if the plane was going down. A roar swelled up. Women cried out, babies squalled, and businessmen grabbed at the sleeves of the stewardesses, pleading for information and emergency cocktails. Oh, great, I muttered, folding my arms. We're going to miss my favorite Martian. Well, if the plane crashes, maybe we won't have to go to school tomorrow, my brother said helpfully. There's no way the plane's crashing, stupid. You going to drink the rest of that Coke? My brother Will and I were en route from Washington, D.C. to New York's LaGuardia Airport to visit our grandparents. In spite of our youth, I was seven and Will eight, we were traveling alone, as we'd been doing for as long as I could remember. Our grandfather's secretary, Miss Pugh, had been forced to book us seats in the midsection of the cabin. The humiliating rear, that quarantine semicircle reserved for losers and the grandchildren of safety-conscious men who sat on the boards of TWA and Pan Am, had already been taken by a group of dark, glittering Indian women and their children. Will and I were thrilled not to be back there, and up until this recent announcement, had been deliberately out of control, which is understandable when you've consumed five Coca-Colas in under an hour. I couldn't decide whether to cry or hit my brother. I'd been in a horrible mood ever since that morning when I'd noticed our tickets were printed out as Master William A. M. Burden IV and Companion. Being a girl meant squat in my father's family. Honestly, you'd think I'd been born to Chinese peasants. So there hadn't been any of us for a couple of generations. You'd have thought everyone would be delighted. I like to think my grandmother was, but her efforts were curtailed by my grandfather. It was obvious that he would have preferred me to have Will's quieter disposition, and vice versa. He was forever telling me to stop talking and let my brother speak, and wanting only Will with him in the photo when my grandmother pulled out her brownie. My mother's advice was to, quote, shut up and put up. Leslie Leppington Hamilton Burden, and eventually Beer and Toby, was not one to coddle her children with parental guidance. She'd lectured me one evening while I was lying on her bed, making snow angels on the striped Mexican bedspread. The sooner you figure out how to deal with being a female in your father's family, the better. 
I'd admired her covertly as she'd cinched a wide calfskin belt over her narrow black sheath, yanking it into an extra hole with a slight grunt. Her waist was smaller than mine, and she made sure I knew it. I'll figure it out, I guess, I'd grumbled. My mother's way of dealing sure wasn't going to be mine. On the rare times I got to see her around my grandparents, she was weirdly unlike herself and acted as sweetly subservient and dumb as Snow White. It was so fake. If I were you, Toots, don't call me Toots, I said. I hated the nickname she used interchangeably on my brother and me. It was like some stupid mall speak. But she had her own little language, a kind of lexicon she substituted for the vocabulary of humor she lacked. Adages and names, and twisting up of words that I guess she thought were funny. I found it unfunny and embarrassing, and I was already missing her. These days it seemed I only spent time with my mother when she was getting ready to leave. My brother and I had recently come to view her as a glamorous lodger who rented the master bedroom suite. "'Why do we have to visit Gaga and Granddaddy so much anyway?' I whined. "'I feel like I live on Eastern Airlines.' Dusty Springfield sang from the phonograph in the corner, and I waggled my legs in time to wishin' and hopin'. Ever since our father had abruptly died the year before, Will and I had become virtual commuters, shuttling back and forth from our home in Washington to those of our grandparents in New York, Maine, and Florida. "'Oh, don't be so bratty,' my mother replied, blacking in her eyebrows with a red Maybelline pencil. There are lots of little girls who'd give up growing tits for a chance to hang out on Fifth Avenue and be waited on by servants. Hand me my lipstick? She passed the frosted tube across her mouth and smacked a Kleenex to set it. Fabergé nude pink was her lifelong color of choice, a pastel shade that brings to mind sunbelt drag queens and leather-faced junior leaguers. She would die wearing it. Anywho, my mother said, giving a blast of final net to her French twist. You know your grandparents have insisted on this visitation schedule ever since your father turned up his toes. And so have their goddamn lawyers. She walked across the room and stood over me then, a tanned blonde bombshell in a cocktail dress, fishnets, and stilettos, reeking of dearissimo. When she leaned down, I was afraid she was going to kiss me or something. But instead, she remarked with disbelief, that can't be a pimple on your chin already. I clamped my creepy comic book over my head, just as the doorbell chimed. Then she and Dusty sang their way down the stairs, leaving me to search my reflection in the mirror for the dreaded signs of pre-prepubescent acne. It never occurred to our mother when she left us at the airport that we might not be returned in the same condition. The notion that our chaste little bodies could be taken aside and fingered by unfamiliar hands didn't cross her mind. Nor did thoughts of Tunisian white slavery the narcotic courier trade, Lower East Side sweatshops, or abduction by green pedophiles in silver pods. Or maybe they did. She would leave us at the departure gate, Will in a blazer and clip-on bow tie, me in a scratchy plaid jumper from Best and Company, and then stride off. In the beginning, I pretended she was only going to the restroom, and that the line there was so long that by the time she rushed back, we'd already boarded. I imagined her lingering until the plane departed, blowing kisses and waving to our tiny portholes as the props wind us out to a speck in the sky. I pictured her driving home in her humpy red Volvo to an empty and joyless house where, in despondency, she'd spend the weekend organizing our rooms and planning vacations to Disneyland until she picked us up on Sunday night. But I got over that pretty quick. 
Truth be known, our mother delivered us to any person wearing any semblance of a uniform standing anywhere near the gate, and left without waiting for the plane to board. From the standing-only spot she had parked in, she could make it downtown to Trader Vic's in less time than it takes to put on a pair of sheer black stockings and get the seams straight. In the early 1950s, everyone married early, and my parents had been no exception. My mother had been a 19-year-old anthropology major at Radcliffe, and my father had been 21 and a junior at Harvard. Now, a decade later, she was a young widow, and was she ever making the most of it? Surprise, she would say to us at breakfast on the mornings after her returns. She'd take her hands from behind her back and plunk down some huge, hairy arachnid suspended in an alcohol-filled jar. Wow, we would slur through our fruit loops. You went to Haiti again. Look what else I brought you, she'd say, holding out batik swimwear you'd rather get rat-bite fever than be seen in. Thanks, my brother and I would say as we grabbed our book bags and headed out the door like we were worried about missing the bus. The presents our mother brought were our only clue as to where she'd been. Ice plants meant California. Live alligators in shoeboxes meant Miami. Dead ones on handbags meant Tijuana. So did jumping beans. Gardenias were routine. They came from an evening of scorpions at the outrigger bar at Trader Vic's. We would open the fridge to get out the orange juice and find them, bruised and dog-tired from floating around in rum and dodging the straws of my mother and her date. You could see the little stab marks all over them. For the sake of convenience, I'd learned to do a passable forgery of my mother's signature by second grade. The teachers mostly let it slide. It was a liberal primary school for the children of Washington diplomats. But when I okayed four Ds and an F in a parental note, they reeled me in. I'm truly sorry about your daddy, my homeroom teacher said, addressing me across her desk with compassion. And I know your mommy is frequently out of town, no doubt dealing with her own grief. She adjusted her glasses. That must be very difficult for you and your brother. I nodded and gave a little sniff for good measure. Ha, was she kidding? It was completely cool to have a dead father. I was a class celebrity. And I loved it when my mother was away. I hung out in the basement with my governess, Henrietta, lying on her double bed, inhaling secondhand smoke, and watching Ted Mack's Amateur Hour or The Ed Sullivan Show, she with a tumbler of whiskey and I with a bag of wise potato chips. One thing my mother knew how to do was pick out a good governess. Henrietta and I had a running joke about my mother's schedule. So when's Mommy coming home, I'd say. When she's darker than Sambo, lassie, Henrietta would say back, laughing and choking on her own phlegm. Lighting a fresh Winston off the glowing butt of the last, she'd reach over and tousle my hair. More dip with those crisps, lassie? We absolutely understood each other. Over the PA system, the captain came on again. I'm sure you all have noticed we've been circling. We're trying to use up some of that big old tank of gas before we come on in. He proceeded to tell us that there was a little old problem with getting the landing wheels to go down. That got everyone thinking. Now all you could hear was the vibration of the propellers slicing evenly through the dark and the muffled terror of people mentally preparing to die. Only the Indians in the back appeared unconcerned. What did they care? They'd be back. My brother had gotten the window seat, despite my efforts to scratch and bite my way into it first, and since the captain's announcement, he'd been springing up and down, calling out numbers. Every time I told him to shut up, he said he was counting the moons. Fifteen! Sheesh! I can't believe how many there are, Will said to his tiny oval aperture. 
He had his nose flat against its own reflection. The cabin lights had been dimmed for landing, or whatever, and an eerie calm of light from the reading lamp bounced off my brother's crew cut. "'George is going to be mad we're late,' Will said to the glass. "'He's probably hoping the plane will crash and we'll be dead so he won't have to drive us any more.' I was trying to sound tough, even though my heart was starting to make weird little jumps in my chest. Will turned from the window. "'You think we have time for one last Coke?' At LaGuardia, or West Palm Beach, the gateway to our grandparents' house in Hope Sound, or Bangor, ditto for the summer house in Maine, we were always met by George, our grandparents' marzipan-pink, chrome-domed, unsmiling German chauffeur. He treated my brother and me like medical waste, propelling us through baggage claim by the back of our collars with a gloved vice grip out to the waiting Cadillac limousine. In magnanimous moments, I reasoned that because George had never married, he was unable to appreciate children, let alone share our enthusiasm for acrobatics in the back of his car. Chaperoning us was clearly beneath his dignity, but he couldn't afford to lose his job because George was a Nazi escaping justice. I knew he was a Nazi because one of my uncles was into Hitler. Uncle Ham, Uncle Ham, we called him that because he said everything twice, like, Hitler was a good man, a good man, was my father's younger brother. He liked to neutralize the effects of his Thorazine, which he took for an as-yet undiscovered but clearly out there mental condition, with coffee, Coca-Cola, chocolate bars, no-dose, and four packs of parliaments a day. This made him more than a little chatty, even to a kid. Over the course of a weekend with Uncle Ham, Uncle Ham, you could, through osmosis, learn enough about the Third Reich to write a dissertation on the Nuremberg rallies. A Jewish friend of mine from summer camp had told me that German people liked to cover their lamps with lampshades made from the skin of Jews gassed at Auschwitz. She was three years older than me, and I believed her. You think my grandfather's chauffeur has some? I'd written her by return post. Duh, she'd written back, and had gone on to graphically describe all kinds of atrocities on several sheets of Snoopy stationery, the visualization of which had kept me awake at night for a month. I'd asked Uncle Ham, Uncle Ham, if he thought George had human skin lampshades in his apartment, and he had laughed and nodded his head vigorously. You mean the green ones with the circles and the squares on them? That's right, that's right, he had chortled, blowing smoke out through his nose while guzzling a highball of Coca-Cola. But that's gross! Yes, yes, the color was unfortunate, unfortunate! After that revelation, I resolved to behave as badly as possible on George's watch, and I warned my friends that if anything fishy were to happen to me, like my skin got removed for redecoration purposes, to tell the police the chauffeur did it. The stewardesses were demonstrating the crash position. Miss Bossy Beehive stopped and clucked her tongue at me. Sweetheart, where is that seat belt? I know this is all terribly exciting, but I want your belt securely fastened. Now show me the position you need to be in in case we crash. No sugar pie, all the way down. With a hook like Cassius Clay, she slammed my head down so hard I got a carpet burn from my dress. She turned to my brother, saying, Buckle up, little man. Strafing me with her concrete bosom, she leaned over and nipped in his waist so hard his rib cage shot out over the metal fastener. She nodded to herself and moved on. What do you think it'll be like? I heard Will mumble in a nasal voice. His head was turned on his lap away from me. What? to die. He turned toward me, one eye on the retreating back of the stewardess. Messy, I guess. 
Will sat up and grinned. I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think we'll make a gigantic fireball, and everyone will see it, from California even, and we'll get our names in the papers. Maybe they'll even name a ride at Disneyland after us. It didn't sound so bad the way he envisioned it. In fact, it did sound sort of cool. Damn it, he would probably get to die first. Number one son got everything before me, even psychoanalysis. On Saturday mornings, Will went to see Dr. Berman. He had started going after our father died. According to my grandfather, it was necessary for the son to talk to someone, but not the daughter. When Will returned from his appointment, I sniffed him all over like a dog checking out a mate who's been to the vet. So, I would demand, did he ask you any weird questions? Did he stick needles in you? Did you have to take down your pants? Nah, we just played games, Will said. Well, what kind of games, idiot? Cards? Mousetrap? Does he have creepy crawlers? After jigsaw puzzles, I was obsessed with creepy crawlers. It was a control freak's dream set with a baking unit that could leave scars worthy of an acetylene torch. You put this liquid plastigoop into molds carved with half-reliefs of things like cockroaches and stink bugs and silverfish and scorpions and millipedes and bats, scratching the stuff into the antennae and spindly bug legs with a needle. Then you bake them in the cooker right there on the flammable shag carpeting of your bedroom floor. I don't know, just games. Will didn't recognize his hour with Dr. Berman as the spotlit, center-of-attention shower of love I knew it to be. I was burning up with curiosity. I needed to know what I was missing. But inevitably, my weekly joust for the dirt ended with no answers, and Will punching me in the stomach and declaring, Dr. Berman says you're acting out because you're jealous. No shit. Anyway, that stewardess was wrong. I did not find the present situation exciting. Tragic would describe it more appropriately, because I was going to miss my eighth birthday party. My birthday was a single day out of the year when my mother behaved like a mother. In fact, she behaved like she was running for mother of the year, though that didn't make up for the 364 other days when she either embarrassed me, ignored me, or was geographically elsewhere. I summoned a birthday hostess image of the Merry Widow, she was wearing her signature black stretch pants, beetle booties, and favorite swirly poochy blouse. Her skin was as toasty golden brown as a pretzel, her shoulder-length lemon-colored hair side-parted like a starlet's, and she held out a layer cake of heroic color and proportion and questionable flavor. She was fond of maple or tutti-frutti cake mixes, which she enhanced according to whim with whatever was on hand like adding to the batter tinfoil-wrapped charms that you broke your new molars on. She wasn't great with presents, either. She was the kind of person who told you on the gift card outside exactly what was on the inside. However, she made up for it with her contagious enthusiasm, and her decorations and games were truly inspired. No insipid pin-the-tail-on-the-donkey for us. It was a real donkey and a real horse-tail that you had to slap on the animal's butt with masking tape or, in the case of my brother's most recent birthday party, a thumbtack, which caused a donkey to place his hind feet on the ribs of Brian O'Donohue and send him flying backwards into the library bookcase. She really was the best. All the kids in my class were so jealous of me. Overwhelmed, I began to cry, which put me close to drowning in my May Day position. Twenty-three! Hey, look down there on the ground! They've put crazy foam all over the place, my brother squealed. He was having a blast. Shut up, dumbbell, I hissed, and bit his elbow for good measure. 
I stared at him with self-indulgent hatred as the airplane droned steadfastly in its orbit over Queens. Will was only a year and a half older than me, but my grandparents treated him like he was off to college. This past Christmas, instead of a pony, which is what I'd begged for, Santa had brought me an Hermes scarf printed with Lipizzana horses, a fawn-colored cashmere Hermes cardigan with velvet appliqued horse heads, and a topaz bracelet in a velvet box from Tiffany's. Nothing you crow about to your second-grade classmates when school reconvenes. My brother, in addition to a television, an electric typewriter, Davy Crockett pajamas, and Rock'em Sock'em robots, had gotten the pony. After all the presents had been unwrapped, I had raged at my mother, who was making a rare Yuletide appearance on a stopover between Palm Springs and Tenerife. We were in one of the guest bedrooms of my grandparents' apartment in New York. My mother was in a pink-striped bikini stretched out on the carpet in a contorted pose beneath a couple of carefully positioned sun lamps. "'Why does stupid Will get a pony when I'm the one who takes all the riding lessons?' I'd sobbed from the bed where once again I'd flung myself. My mother had done her best to comfort me. She totally got the horse-love thing. Speaking in a monotone without moving so that her eye protectors wouldn't shift, she said, "'I'm sorry, toots. I know how you feel.' "'But your grandparents gave him the horse. Don't look at me.' Well, "'Why didn't you stop them? You should have told them he hates horses.' "'Oh, get over it. They decided he should have a horse. End of story.' She was done comforting. "'And listen, if I were you, I'd get over potato chips, too. Oink, oink.' I put my hands up to my chipmunk cheeks. As if she could see this, my mother smoothed her own hands over her nutmeg-colored, flat-as-a-cow-pie abdomen." She flexed her painted toes a few times to ease the strain of the peculiar tanning position she was in. Hey, sometimes that's just how the cookie crumbles. I got up to leave. I had a mind to go finish the bag of Cheetos I'd hidden in the help's pantry. I know where your stash is, toots, she said as I was doing my best Indian walk out the door. And hey, tell Adolf or Albert or whatever the new butler's name is. Tell him to bring Mummy another daiquiri, would you? There's a good girl. The following afternoon, I attempted to snuff out my brother by shoving him out of the limo into midtown Manhattan day after Christmas sale mania traffic. He had swung out like a cartoon character, holding onto the handle of the huge door with the tenacity of a booger while it yawned out over the whizzing tarmac of 57th Street. We'd traveled that way for several blocks until George braked to avoid mowing down a police officer. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. "'What do you think the crazy foam's for, anyway?' Will said to me now. I sat up and unbuckled myself, after checking to make sure the stewardess wasn't looking. "'Let me see,' I said, shouldering him out of the way. "'I'll tell you what the foam's for.' The passenger across from us put out his hand and laid it on the armrest of my vacated seat. He was so tall it was no effort for him to lean across the aisle. Will and I, crowded into the window seat, stared at the huge bony paw the veins raised and the knuckles lumpy, and then at his long, pale face. The man's tortoiseshell reading glasses were pushed up onto his forehead like they were surfing a wave of mangy caterpillars. The foam, he said, is to cushion the plane's fuselage when we land on the runway without the aid of wheels. The pilot will attempt to slide the aircraft down the asphalt runway without it and us igniting into a ball of fire. Oh, was my response that and a little spurt of pee into my carters. Cool, breathed my brother, turning back to the window. There's another. That makes 31. I gotta tell my science teacher about this. 
Engrossed in his moon tabulation, Will was oblivious to what the rest of us knew to be happening. I felt a swell of affection for him, like he was a dumb puppy or something, and I pressed close beside him at the window. I looked out into the apocalyptic night. As we glided slowly over the airport, I could see emergency vehicles clustering below, their red and white lights like the beating hearts of cornered mice. They were alarmingly visible, even from our height of 10,000 feet. I had never known real fear before. No person, no thing, had really frightened me. When my brother had led me downstairs to the policeman in our living room, on the night our father's body was found, I hadn't been afraid, just confused. But something about those flashing lights below terrified me, because they validated the certitude of death in a way my father's could not. This was real, because this was for me. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.